Hello, my name's Charlotte Watts. This podcast was recorded at one of my live events, so either at a workshop, retreat or course that I was running. You can see details of these at my website, charlottewattshealth.com or join my Facebook group, Charlotte Watts Calm. I hope it's helpful to you. Okay. So, hello. Um, What I want to talk to you about today is the relationship between stress and cravings and bringing the two in to really get a feel for what is kind of underlying us in terms of our drivers, our motivations, the thing that then creates our relationship with the food that we take in and the things that we want. And want is a very, very key word here. So that's not the same as need. We might have some idea of the long-term plans that we want to have in terms of health, in terms of what we should be eating, in, in air quotes, should be eating. But even though we have those plans and we kind of might get an idea of, you know, what our, our health easing plan is or something that um, we feel that we can get into in terms of a kind of regime or, you know, daily routines, we can find ourselves stressed and suddenly simply craving sugar or suddenly simply just finding ourselves, you know, eating a whole carton of ice cream or something. So what happens with um, a lot of clients that I get is that they will often say sentences like, I know what I should be eating, but I seem to find myself kind of, these that term, falling off the wagon. And understanding some of the motivations behind that drive is really helpful to let ourselves off the hook. Because a lot of people will get into language around willpower as well. So this idea that um, to give in to cravings, to eat lots of things that we consider bad for us, is to have no willpower. And willpower is one of those terminologies that is quite unhelpful in that to have willpower is to hold onto something in a really tight, tense way. It's kind of like holding onto the edge of a cliff. You know, it's, it's not sustainable to hold you there. As soon as you let go you drop. And willpower is very similar in that people can kind of hold it together for a while. And it's quite a tense situation. It's, it's not having an ease or a, an ability to flow or change or adapt within that. Um, that if you let go, then there's a feeling that you suddenly kind of ping to the opposite side. So when we hold things together with willpower, that's when we feel that we don't keep them up. So it might be that you intend to, you know, do that exercise regime, you know, have that particular breakfast, not have that particular treat. Um, But if that's from willpower alone, then often we find ourselves in these cycles where kind of maybe three, four days in or even weeks in or sometimes even months in, suddenly we just don't find that that's sustainable anymore because it takes so much energy to hold that in place. And if that's what's happening, then that that brings up a couple of questions. A, really, why is that happening? Why was that not sustainable for you, that activity? Um, and, And then how do we support 
what's going on in terms of your actual underlying needs, not wants, but underlying needs, so that when they are satisfied, that's when we settle into stuff. Because a lot of the seeking we do and a lot of the self-soothing that we do in terms of food, a lot of the going back to routines and habits that we don't necessarily want to be following is about unmet needs. And when we look underneath those, we can start to get an idea of um, really working with ourselves and not against ourselves. So when we bring stress into this pattern, there's a really important to firstly note the definition of stress. It's not a, a bad a judgment of something bad. It's a provocation to a reaction. So although the word has become it, like it's something detrimental, actually stress in and of itself is a motivation. It's us in our excitatory active tone. Um, and it's also us in survival tone. So essentially it's the fight or flight response so that is either standing our ground and protecting ourselves, or it's running away. It's getting out of there to protect ourselves. And either way, that is us going into very active, um, full-on physical mode. And it's the stuff of survival. And it's not a bad thing. We need to have some of that motivation, some of that that energizing that allows us to, to be um, really focused, to have concentration, to have a sense of purpose, to have a sense of getting things done. Um, and when we don't have that, we can be quite listless or even depressed, either to the point of a diagnosis of depression or to feel that sense of demotivation. So it can be you know, in a depressive state rather than being depressed, as it were. And those resources get worn down. So our resources to be kind of up and active get worn down because in this society, we're expected to be up all the time. That a lot of the practices that we do in these kind of, these very kind of compassionate, meditative, somatic, uh, kind, physical and mindful practices are to allow us to really start to have that acceptance that to not to keep doing, to do less, to allow ourselves to go down, to be sad when we feel sad, to be fearful when we feel fearful, to be with the whole of human experience. You know, that is to be able to hold ourselves in places that does actually allow us to, to um, foster our resources up. And to also recognise that to just keep going is not a very good long-term plan. It's exhausting, exhausts our resources. So it's very important to notice that this chronic stress, which is the stuff where we keep it up, it gets kept up, is the stuff that wears down those resources. And to come down out, for that not to become pathological, something that, that creates stress-related symptoms, which include inflammation, inflammation is a protective part of the stress response, we need several things. We need recovery, so we need to be able to have times where we come down after something that's heightened. So that includes, and within the daily rhythm, good quality of sleep. It includes within life actually coming to do active relaxation. That is stuff when we're consciously present 
within relaxation. So that's not the same as like collapsing on the TV, in front on the sofa in front of the TV. That's a very different thing. It's not has, doesn't have a consciousness about it, and plugging into a screen still keeps the nervous system in that heightened, active, protective mode, and it keeps our eyes moving and are in ways that are just very, very hyper vigilant. Like in the survival response, we would never move our eyes like that in nature. In the mm. quick way we look at screens and flickering mm. imagery. And there's constant change and there's that constant, you know, quite, quite a lot of overwhelm there. So to come down to those points of recovery allows us to come back down to where we can build up resources. We can come back down into parasympathetic mode. So the opposite of fight or flight, the sympathetic autonomic nervous system mode is to come into that parasympathetic, that rest and digest heal, detoxify, it's often called feed and breed mode, which is not quite quite so pretty, but it is where we do those processes that are much more long-term. So the stress response is immediate. It's about immediate protection. It's about being suddenly aware of stuff around us. It comes with vigilance for protection, so the brain gets very, very active. Senses get really online, which is why it's kept up. We can go into hypervigilance, a racing mind to check we're all right. And it has that immediacy. So it has compulsion and impulse in there. So this is kind of where it feeds into kind of addictive cycles to craving cycles. Coming down the other side, coming into that parasympathetic, the, the rest and recovery mode takes us more into these more open, expansive, reflective tones. It's where we can be open-minded, we can be non-judgmental because we're not having to make those quick decisions of good, bad for survival. And it's where if we have a long-term plan, then we can much more likely keep it up because we have a much broader sense of time and a broader sense of looking after ourselves in stuff beyond the present moment so evolution survival isn't bothered about you know health in terms of having healthy food it's just about immediate immediacy in terms of your survival and thus in terms of survival of the species propagation of the species which is kind of just keeping going basically when we come into recovery mode, when we come down the other side and we keep up that more reflective tone, it's often called where we can be compassionate, where we can have awe, where we can have a social engagement, we are also open-minded. We're, we're able in those tones to, to hear another person's point of view, to have our mind change, to see things from different angles. So it's a much more broad and expansive tone in many, many ways. So we also suffer from stress-related conditions when we don't see an end point. So you can get quite stressed on something like a project and hold that up there and get quite excited in that. You know, I like I quite like this like fear of a deadline. It really gets me quite focused for writing. But I have learned over the years that it really must come with a recovery period afterwards. Or is actually because we come from a culture of doing and achieving and quite high expectations and status about doing, and that not doing is has no value or is lazy, then we just keep going. And we have we have this idea that just taking, you know, a week's holiday 
in six months or a year somehow addresses that balance. And that's just terrible maths, basically. Uh, it, it does, that's not enough. We need to be doing that, you know, hourly, daily, monthly, yearly. So we need to have this sense of an end point. If something feels relentless, it feels overwhelming. And this is one of the factors of, of chronic stress. It feels overwhelming because we're on that constant alert and that is tiring. When you're in that up stress protective state, you are running the nervous system and the whole, all of the body systems, all of the organism at a much higher rate. You use up a lot more energy. Now, where that comes into nutrition and cravings is that that is a signal for fuel up. So if we perceive that we are in constant danger, so it doesn't necessarily mean that we are in constant danger. It's not that some some big threat, it's that saber-toothed tiger is coming in to get us, but we have this psychosocial stress where it's emotional stuff, where it's about cohesion of the tribe, where it's about... Our relationships, our, uh, our sense of safety in terms of you know, home life, financial stuff, job stuff, all of that stuff that's of a much more psychosocial nature than the stuff we would have in the wild. It's such a drip feed stressor. It's quite relentless. It keeps going. That when you recognize that's the nature of it, that actually it, it starts to become, you start to see where that comes in and where you need to step off that treadmill of expectation that somehow you can keep going through that but actually we need to come down and we need to be very kind to ourselves um, and allow ourselves to come back down into recovery continually so when we don't do that and we just keep the stress response up even slightly and for you know many 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 people that's what is now the new normal particularly if there's kind of trauma in the mix it's normal to be slightly up slightly agitated and people will often say, I'm not stressed because they don't see it as something that they're very, very, you know, it doesn't go into anxiety. But often you see more and more those stress-related symptoms in terms of things like anxiety, IBS, insomnia, headaches, fatigue conditions, inflammatory conditions. And that little drip feed, even if you're just slightly agitated, you just keep things up during the day that tightness in the jaw that hypervigilance that kind of looking around that checking everything's okay mode then that is tiring and thus it keeps up the fuel up so what happens when we are in those modes is that we have that driver to crave food to look for food and when we are in survival states what we want, what we're driven to desire are sugars and junk fats. And that's often referred to as something called, um, I can never remember the name, but I think it's drive induction hypothesis. Um, but that is the, 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 the kind of name of the research behind that that just shows that people, when they're in chronic stress, they just want sugar and junk fats. So I'm calling them junk fats there to really distinguish between healthy fats, because it's certainly not vilifying fats there in any way i'm certainly not an advocate of a low fat diet so what we want desire are driven to want so let's be clear about this this is an unconscious survival driver that's running the show here so this is where you can see the will this idea of willpower is just cruel to think that at that point you should be just pushing away from it 
it's much more about understanding these these dry, these primal drivers. When we crave that, we crave the thing that actually within our kind of modern diet has the most detriment health-wise, which is that combination of sugar and junk fats, which is the things we love. We get a happy from them. Cakes, biscuits, pastries, crisps. Yeah, all that stuff. So, you know, we within that, we will all have our the craving of stuffed chocolates. Sorry, I mentioned, forgot to mention that one. <laughs> we will all have the thing that we know we turn to at that point of I want self-medication, I want self-soothing. What, what soothes my agitated brain chemistry? What helps normalise me at that point? And this is a conversation I often have with clients is that, you know, what is... Let's look at the nature of the thing that you actually want, the thing that is your kind of soother, your self-medication, because that really gives us a good, a good guide into what can actually help undo that. So what is the thing that we can put in place to help soothe brain chemistry without feeding into those cycles? So it's really important at this point to use that information to note So, for instance, if you're standing at a queue in a supermarket or a shop, they're very, very, very good at knowing this stuff psychologically in terms of our relationships with food. So, it's well known that if you can see something, you're going to want it. That is healthy. Now, we can really beat ourselves up for that want, but it's really important to go, no, that's a healthy, that's a really healthy desire because in the wild finding food is really tough really difficult to find food you have to work really hard and so you have to be really motivated so that's where this this stress response this drive this dopamine mood and motivator reward sense comes in to drive you to do all the hard work to get the food but we live in a world of abundance We have kind of too much, if you like, and we have decision-making, we have choice. You wouldn't have choice in the wild. You'd be lucky to find something. You certainly wouldn't have a choice between, you know, water or 57 different varieties of fruit juice. You would just have the one thing. You would just have water and you would just have it. So we also have this stress now of decision-making and standing there and going not only, oh no, should I have it or not, but then which one, you know, there's all choice. And, you know, the conversation about which is good for me, which one fits in with my diet. I'm pretty sure that says there's that, you know, the whole thing that starts off that quite stressful um, inner conversation, inner dialogue. So when we're standing at that supermarket queue, it is so natural to have those that inner stuff going on because it's such an unnatural thing to have all of that choice in front of you and have to go no I don't want it Uh, once you understand that mechanism you start to be able to have a mindful relationship with this so I've been doing this for years and looking at that conversation and I'm I am a reformed sugar addict as it were so sometimes I will have that stuff and go do you know I just want a treat There's a big difference between a treat. You could take it or leave it. You don't rely on it to normalize. A habit is something that has become part of your biochemical landscape. 
that without it, you don't feel normal. And I have that with sugar. You know, it creeps back in again in stressful times, premenstrually, I'm perimenopausal, so it's all over the place, you know, and I can see it creep in, and then it's the kind of like, ah, oh, I just want it to be able to do that writing. And at that point, actually, it's, a, it's an honest conversation with, do you know what, I can't actually get this article written if I don't self-medicate, um, because I need to get it done. I, I will n- noted, <laughs> noted to self, without the shame or the guilt, because I know what my biochemistry is doing, um, but I do need to kind of draw that round another point. But once you can start to have those conversations, those inner conversations with yourself where you understand what's going on, you can start to let go of the guilt. So the harsh inner voices, you can start to drop beneath them, see how problematic they are in feeding into the shame and guilt spirals, the relationship with that food in, in and of itself. And then if you have a treat, you actually enjoy it. Or you're surprised that actually it's not as great as you thought it was going to be. It doesn't like, you know, angels don't weep and it doesn't, you know, sort all of your problems out. It's like that new pair of shoes. Same kind of seeking. We're built to seek. That's what gets us, you know, food in the wild. A seeking imperative. So to understand those drivers allows us to have an honest conversation with our inner landscape. And be kind to ourselves. So have as little stuff at home as possible. So I've heard people saying, you know, I should, I should be able to have things at home and resist them. I can't. I, I cannot do that. Now, my partner can do that. He can have chocolate in the cupboard for months and have, oh, a square now and then. And some of my clients say that. And I'm like, yeah, that doesn't compute with me. I am really not one of those people. In fact, I will eat it to get rid of it. Because I, the knowing it's there causes me so much inner angst that I'm like, I just want that gone. And I will give it, I, we don't live together, so I will give it to him and say, you know, I bought some, from, I went to Turkey, bought some Turkish delight for people, lots of Turkish delight. I cannot have boxes of Turkish delight in my cupboards. I mean, that's just asking for, well, me to eat lots of Turkish delight, basically, is the upshot of that. One night, late at night, when I don't care, you know? A conscious binge. I quite like a conscious binge. They're very different to a mindless binge. But so, yeah, I give it to him. I know it's going to... I actually forgot it existed, which was quite good. Where did I put that Turkish delight? Come Christmas. But it's very well known that if you put stuff where you can see it, you're going to eat it. And if you have it in the house, you're going to eat it. It's kind of the inevitable conclusion. You might be one of those lovely people who really gets... You know, we're, the other ones are lovely too. We're all lovely. Uh, who gets to be able to, you know, resist because they don't have... that. Their driver is for other things, maybe. But also, people who put stuff out on the side. So, you know, I sometimes go to people's houses and they have, like, cakes out on the side. And I, that is... I find that quite exhausting because it, I have to work quite hard to not have the cake. I'm like, oh, I'd rather just not have it here there because then I actually don't have that, that come in to <laughs> the energy with that relationship. But not having it in the house is really, really helpful. It's not, that's not you not having willpower. That's just giving yourself an easier time because quite frankly, when you go out into the world, it's going to be there all the time. And actually, the less you have it, the more you have that space with it. And the more possibility you have to support yourself nutritionally at other times so that your needs are met, 
so that when you come across it, yes, you have the drive and the want to have it, but you're not having it as to fill a kind of gaping hole of need. That you have enough energy, you have enough resources, you basically have the blood sugar balance, the B vitamins, zinc present to be able to to balance energy, mood, um, that even if you want it and you have it, it doesn't upset your blood sugar balance, your biochemistry, and you can have some sense, not of control, so I'm really, again, that's one of those willpower words, but you have a sense of um, relationship with it. So it comes in and comes out. And sometimes, you know, it, you have more coffee, you have more of those things that bring to, you to a more heightened nervous system state. And sometimes you just feel that you're in a stride of things are, are nice and easy. So having that type of breakfast, like we have here in kind of the, the, the wonderful breakfast buffet, where there's lots of different proteins present, um, and soothing fats, fats that give you a sense of satisfaction. So it's fats and proteins that give you that sense of enough. Oh yeah, I'm done. I have enough. I'm satisfied. And those that's signaling from the gut to the brain through neuropeptides. And we don't get that from carbohydrates, which are pl- all plant foods. It doesn't just mean starchy carbohydrates. It doesn't just mean grains, beans. It means all carbohydrates, which is the plant kingdom essentially so that those will eating loads of those will produce bulk so they make you feel full they they um, activate stretch receptors in the stomach to say full but they don't provoke production of the neuropeptides that say satisfied to the brain it's different so proteins and fats really make you go enough which is why when you have sugar cravings, if you have something that has healthy fat in it and has a sense of sweetness, but isn't necessarily something that's going to set off sugar cravings again, then it can start to unravel those cycles where we get used to having sugar as a kind of fake energy. It's not fake because it does give us glucose, but it's a quick fix energy. We get into cycles of having that to give us highs but then we have subsequent lows and we kind of get used to the kind of running in the highs and lows as the way that we energetically run our cycles throughout the day Um, but if we are able to really manage our energy in a much more sustained way then we're much more less likely to need the highs and, and go towards things that give us the highs so something like fats coconut's really really good for this because it has a sweet taste it's in the plant kingdom. Um, so coconut milk has more carbohydrates, but it's, it's all has a sweeter taste. It has fats that are present that are incredibly good for metabolism. The types of saturated fats in coconut are called MCTs, medium, <coughs> medium chain triglycerides. We don't lay those types of saturated fat down as adipose tissue, as stored fat. We use them, we have to metabolize them quickly. So they actually raise metabolism. Um, and coconut oil is, has incredible immune uh, supporting properties in it. And cinnamon is another incredibly useful food. So it, it tells the brain we've had something sweet, 
but it actually mimics insulin. It moves sugars in the bloodstream into cells to be used as energy, which is why so much research around cinnamon and diabetes has been done. So those are real key foods that I would you know, come to for people, either to add in for breakfast, so particularly those two for vegans who won't necessarily get the, the, the larger quantities of, of, of denser fats and proteins in their diets, but also as things that can be used for sugar cravings, particularly if you put a combination of uh, either like Greek yogurt or coconut yogurt, and maybe coconut if you're having the Greek yogurt, and nuts, which have starchy carbs. They have plenty of oils and protein and B vitamins and zinc, all the things we need for energy production and blood sugar balance. Um, that combination, and then berries in there for a bit of sweetness. There's a sourness in berries that also keeps our palate much more varied. We don't just come towards sweet, 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 sweet all the time. Um, and berries are known to dampen down kind of spikes of blood sugar after eating. It's incredibly helpful for blood sugar balance. So that combination is one that I come to quite a lot for clients. That combination of uh, yogurt, um, coconut, cinnamon, berries, nuts. Really helpful in terms of kind of snack or a breakfast. But, you know, there's a large array. And particularly we tend to sugar cravings, having savoury for breakfast really doesn't set you off with a, just a sense of sweet from the get-go. It doesn't give you that kind of sweet, like sweet, want sweet, you know, as, a, as, as another primary driver. Because we are designed to go towards the sweet taste because we are one of only three mammals that don't produce our own vitamin C. So the fruit bat, the guinea pig, which gets used for a lot of experiments... And, uh, and humans, we're the only ones who don't make our own vitamin C. So we have to get it from food. We have to eat plenty of vitamin C in really large amounts. So we have to really, again, it's those seeking mechanisms, those drivers, we're drawn towards sources of it. And ripening fruit is a really, really good vehicle for vitamin C, a vessel for vitamin C. So we're drawn towards it which also adds in why we're drawn to alcohol as uh, ripening fruit. Obviously, it has ethanol in it. So we have that kind of predilection as well to be drawn to it. So to recognise that we have that driver and actually, you know, having this mindful, honest relationship with the, the voices in between, the inner dialogue about the difference between wanting and needing can really help to, to change our minds so that we're supporting ourselves foundationally underneath so that then there's that landscape for a more open, reflective inner conversation. What that means is that we have more space, more time between impulse, so the instinctive, primal, protective response that is right at the brainstem, right at the, the grey matter inside the brainstem that's very part of the ancient brain, very, very instinctive kind of reptilian brain stuff that just goes want in the face of danger and is very immediate, so it's that immediate response. And the bit where the front brain, the one where we can have consciousness, cognitive decision-making, can come in. So when we are co continually in chronic stress or we have that, that lack of impulse control, 
there's very little space between impulse, want, and behavior. We just do it. So that's, that's mindless. But when we are spending much more time being in that place of, it's called uh, ventral vagus, vagal tone. It's when our soothing vagus nerve from the base of the skull allows us to come down and we can be in that lovely place of openness, awe, compassion, wonder, reflection, long-term plans. When we're in that place, we have more space between the impulse of the lower brain and the cognitive decision-making of the front brain. So you can go, oh yeah, I can see that I've got that impulse. I can see I want that. That's fair enough. But let's just have a conversation with whether I, I, you know, I actually do go ahead with that or not. So particularly if you're in a long queue at a supermarket and you've got time to stand there with the, the you know, Percy pigs in M&S and the cappuccino truffle bars, then, you know, you've got plenty of time to have that conversation. And I always have the conversation, I turn it into, what would I have? If I was going to, I'm not going to have something, but if I was going to something have something, what would I have? Now that's, I'm always looking at that stuff because I'm a nutritionist. So I'm always weighing up the bits of, you know, what's better, what's worse, or what's that got in it, what's this got in it. And I need to know what people are buying in terms of the food, the stuff that's, you know, they're surrounded by all the time. Um, so for me, I can kind of switch it into a kind of slightly professional thing. Um, but you can have those, you know, what if conversations. Doesn't mean you, you want to go through with it. I don't know. You could, you could fantasize, you, you know, live in a castle as a princess with a pony for a best friend. You know, it doesn't mean that expecting that to <laughs> become real <laughs> or it to even be really that great. <laughs> So, you know, dreaming, fantasizing, projecting, very, you know, it's one thing the human mind can really do. We can make up story. It's really what kind of, you know, singles us out. So we can have that kind of fantastical conversation, but, you know, it doesn't need to go, we don't need to go through with it as reality. So it's having that as well, that that kind of relationship that, that can really change things. But kindness then becomes one of the most important underlying things. That if we do have something, we can say, okay, I'm, tr- I'm treating myself. We can notice when that tips over into habit. It might be something we have a daily, every three days, every week, every month. Doesn't mean that these are necessarily bad. You know, my habit is, and addiction is to have coffee every single morning. I love it. There is, you know, it's not all bad there. There's many health benefits to coffee, Um, but just recognising our patterns and being kind to ourselves and then noticing that really being kind to ourselves is satisfying our deeper nutritional needs. So particularly with breakfast, recognising that what we have at the beginning of the day really makes a difference to what we crave around 4pm, that time when we're metabolically changing over from active to ready to go into recovery sleep mode in the evening. And it's quite a kind of uh, uh, sensitive time in terms of craving. So preempting that for the good breakfast and maybe some, you know, nuts, fruit, preempting that, pla- you know, if you, what have you noticed that each day you're tending to have, you know, cake or biscuit, whatever, around 4pm, then notice that and either switch that to something like, that kind of snack that I mentioned before or have something before notice that maybe you need a bigger breakfast 
to support that or a bigger lunch to support that. Just play with, you'll maybe need to go for a walk after lunch. Maybe your stress patterns are feeding into that. But watching your patterns, watching your drivers, watching your tendencies, your habits, having that consciousness, that awareness is what really allows you to start to have that really mindful relationship with your cravings. <laughs>